Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Mark Becker, a podcast produced by Georgia State University. You can find this episode wherever you listen to podcasts. In this and in upcoming weekly podcasts, I will be speaking with researchers and other experts who can provide us with valuable information relating to the coronavirus pandemic. Hope you will find these conversations useful as well as thought-provoking. And if you do, please subscribe so that you will not miss future episodes. Again, I'm your host, Georgia State President Mark Becker, and today our subject ties directly to a recent New York Times story with the headline, What Five Coronavirus Models Say the Next Month Will Look Like. The opening lines of that story are, in the last few weeks, we've all become a little more familiar with epidemiological models. These calculations, which make estimates about how many people are likely to get sick, need a hospital bed, or die from coronavirus, are guiding public policy, as well as our expectations about what the future holds. But if you look at the models, they don't really agree. That's how the article starts. Well, with me today, to help us better understand the uses and challenges of using mathematical models to combat the COVID-19 pandemic, is Professor Horando Chow, mathematical epidemiologist and internationally recognized infectious disease expert in Georgia State University School of Public Health. Gerardo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's really a, a pleasure to be here with you, Mark. Thank you. Well, Gerardo, it uh, seems to me that you actually were preparing from this event, if you will, from uh, the very day that you were, days when you were a graduate student at Cornell University. Uh, if I read your CV right, the first article you published was SARS outbreaks in Ontario, Hong Kong, and Singapore the role of diagnosis and isolation as a control mechanism. So would you please tell us a little bit about your background and the sorts of things you're modeling today and how those models are being used to combat COVID-19? Sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, so early on, uh, when I was a graduate student at Cornell University, you know, we ran into the 2003 SARS outbreaks. And uh, my advisor, Carlos Castillo Chavez, quickly uh, brought this uh, to my attention when we were uh, spending uh, some time at Los Alamos National Laboratory, by the way. And uh, we started to work on, on that problem. At the same time, as I was just learning about all about models and, and uh, different ways you can uh, characterize disease transmission and control. So it was a very exciting time to, to learn and put into practice uh, the, the techniques, the mathematics, the statistics into that problem. Um, one of the early challenges was the, the fact that the data that was uh, available, uh, as always, is very limited, right? So you have to be very careful in the way you develop the models and try to keep things simple so that you can actually communicate something to public health officials and the public. Um, so at the time, one of the key questions, as always, is uh, what, how, how transmissible this, this virus is, how quickly is it spreading the population? And, and then what are the best strategies to control it? So with these um, particular models that we developed at the time, uh, we studied um, how quickly, est first estimated how quickly the virus was spreading. And then based on those uh, estimates and the information that was coming up on you know, the length of the incubation period and infectious periods, uh, we started to, to develop the model and parameterizing the models. And then we ask the question, so what would it take to control these outbreaks? 
And um, so the models were very helpful to, to determine what would be the level of diagnosis, how quickly you need to identify the infectious individuals in the population, and then um, how well you need to bring them into isolation as well. Because uh, many of the cases, in fact, were arising uh, stemming from hospitals and healthcare settings. Um, so the model that uh, we developed and uh, calibrated using data for a few outbreaks um, help us uh, determine the level of uh, isolation and, and rapid diagnosis. And importantly, I think the main finding was that it is visible. It was visible. If you are able to put in place these um, basic uh, public health strategies, any any country should be able to bring under control this this, this epidemic. SARS so, yeah. so your, your experience with SARS, um, you know, now 17 years ago, would you say this virus that's creating COVID-19 is for you is just run-of-the-mill work or is this virus presenting some unique and different challenges to your past work? Oh, this is, the, this is definitely the most exciting pathogen I have ever worked with. And I think most epidemiologists will agree with me. This, uh, this virus is the perfect storm, has a unique infectiousness profiles, transmissibility, severity. Um, it, it is sufficiently severe to be of concern to any public health official, right? Um, it is not as severe as uh, SARS, right? SARS killed about 15% on average of those that got infected. This, this virus can kill around one to 5% on, on average, and it could be higher if the healthcare system gets overwhelmed. Um, and importantly, there is a substantial fraction of asymptomatic individuals, individuals that are spreading the virus in the population in a, silently. And so it just brings additional challenges to public health officials to bring under control this epidemic. And in fact, it is also highly transmissible. It can really spread very quickly in confined settings. And we are seeing that uh, from clusters arising from, from uh, religious ceremonies in churches and, and restaurants conferences. And so it, as the epidemic has evolved into a pandemic, we have learned so much about the epidemiology. Uh, most of the transmission occurs prior to the onset of symptoms. That's, all. That's a key, key issue here, right? Um, so definitely very challenging to control this epidemic, even when you put a you know, reasonable level of interventions and you put lockdowns. Uh, it is extremely difficult to, to completely uh, eradicate all of the chains of transmission in a population. So at best, you can keep incidence levels low. Um, and I think that's the, that's the challenge and that's probably the goal. We have to live with the virus for, for, a, for a while. So in your own modeling, what are you modeling cases? Are you modeling deaths? Are you modeling demand on ICU beds? What are the sorts of things that you specifically work on? Yeah, we, we are working broadly with the time series of cases that are being reported daily around the world and in the United States at the state level. Uh, with my students and collaborators, we are using both uh, phenomenological models that try to capture the empirical patterns in the data and try to extract whether you know the, the epidemic curve is the composition of multiples of epidemics to more mechanistic models that allow you to tune in parameters such as the transmission rate, um, uh, implement a specific uh, control interventions such as social distancing, uh, lockdowns, 
different levels of uh, diagnosis, whether you are testing and identifying 20% of the infected individuals or 40%, how that is, that is affecting the trajectory of the epidemic. And we are publishing these this forecasts on uh, our website uh, in the School of Public Health on a regular basis. Uh, the, the models have been doing very well at generating uh, short-term forecasts uh, within the next 10 days. Um, a challenge is that the data is far from perfect. Um, there's a lot of noise in the data. There have been many issues, obviously, with the testing. Um, the testing has been gradually increased, uh, and, and so that poses additional challenge to, challenges to be able to connect our mathematical models with the statistics in the data. So I, I know that you started working with data on this particular virus and this particular manifestation, COVID-19, uh, with the outbreak in Wuhan. So you've been working on this for a while, back into February at least. Um, as you collected data around the world, did you see that your models were giving you different estimates of what could be expected? So did you go from China to Italy, you know, to New York and Georgia and the U.S.? And, as you look at different data, how did your insights about this virus change? Yeah, that's an excellent question because um, so we we started working with the, the data was that was coming up uh, coming out of China, and we started to generate very quickly some short term forecasts, and uh, we were amazed how well the models have been doing at least for for China, uh, quite well on track with the trajectory and everything. Uh, the data from China was indicating that it was going to be a very nice bell-shaped curve. The epidemic grows, peaks, and goes down. And, and that's exactly what happened in, in China. So that gave us a lot of confidence that it would have been, it would be feasible to control the epidemic in any other settings, right? And I, I thought, well, if the, the virus will, will show up in the U.S., we will be able to you know, find those chains of transmission and bring things under control. But later on, as we realized that um, not only the data uh, that was collected in China was far from perfect for multiple reasons, one of them, the fact that there is a substantial fraction of asymptomatic individual, uh, we realized that the dynamics that are occurring in different settings are, can be completely different. You can have dynamics of like a spreading wave of transmission of low incidence, like in Singapore, where they have been doing a great job in containing transmission, just until recently where they saw just a resurgence, um, to places like Italy and Spain and New York City, where you have exponential growth and the, the epidemic uh, peaks and starts to decline. And we are seeing that there is a chance that the epidemic will not necessarily decline very quickly. And in fact, it may reach a stationary state. Um, and then the question is whether we can reduce that stationary state uh, sufficiently to sufficiently low levels to keep the risk of, of infection for the community uh, very low. And, and that would be a challenge. And that's still a challenge even before we go back to, to our um, daily lives. Yeah. So when you model the, you know, the dynamics, as you call it, uh, how, how do you account for things like the social distancing shelter in place? How does, how does that factor into your models, these, these interventions, if you will? Right. So the shelter in place is essentially reducing your contact rate in the community. 
it really plummets that contact rate. Um, and, and so that's basically a parameter. And the contact rate uh, is a time-dependent parameter. So whenever the lockdown is put in place, you can switch on that uh, intervention. And that quickly, automatically can reduce the contact rate and bring down uh, transmission. Um, another way we more recently have been doing this is by incorporating uh, social distancing measures that are being provided by Google based on the mobility of the population uh, for uh, you know different spatial scales in different places. So we're using this type of data now uh, and it gives you more resolution, right? Because when the intervention is put in place, uh, the parameter doesn't automatically switch from one to, from one to zero, but it's a more gradual uh, effect. And by using this type of information, and cell phone record data as well. Uh, you can incorporate better this information in, in the models. So in, essentially, if we were to, st we stayed at home for two weeks and we stop all of the transmission, in theory, we could get rid of the virus, right? But that doesn't happen, exactly. We can just stay at home, but there's, it's not perfect. There's a fraction of the population that has to continue the mixing process and continue mixing in the population. And there are introductions, right? We are not isolated. We, we are getting introductions from uh, folks that are coming from South Carolina and from New York and from in all, many other places. And so that just ensures that the virus is able to, to keep spreading in, in the population. And so the key is uh, having sufficient amount of testing in, in place. And whenever you find an infectious individual, conduct rigorous contact tracing to locate the contacts of that individual. You test all those contacts, even if they don't show any symptoms because of the, there are asymptomatics, and you bring those into isolation. And if we do that rigorously, it should be feasible to bring uh, incidence levels to, to very low levels. And uh, that requires basically having testing available on a much wider scale and um, being able to get timely results and accurate results. Exactly, exactly. And I, I also think that we we need to be um, wearing face masks uh, mm -hmm. universally. Uh, and that should be, you know, part of the strategy um, as, as we think about uh, going back to our normal lives. Well, it's, you know, for those of us that have traveled extensively in Asia for years, you, you just become accustomed that wearing a face mask is, it's not everybody, but it's part of normal life pre-COVID-19 in, in parts of Asia. Uh, do you see face masks being part of normal life basically probably everywhere on this planet for at least the next year or two? I think so. It is definitely uh, something that will probably stay for, for very long as mm -hmm. this virus will continue to mutate, most likely. A vaccine will arrive, hopefully. Uh, but, as you know, these viruses find ways to, to stay in the population. Um, and we'll, we have to, you know, continue uh, developing and innovating ways in which we can protect ourselves from these pathogens. Well, and, and some viruses are, let's say, more easily combated with a vaccine than others, with influenza being an example of a virus that we have vaccines every year and they don't always hit the mark. Exactly. So we just need to pray that the vaccine that we will get for this coronavirus is sufficiently high, hopefully around 85, 90%, that will be wonderful. 
and we can. Um, Does that have to do with the mutation rate of the virus? That if it mutates more slowly, the vi- vaccine should be better. Is that is that a, real, a factor? That that's definitely a factor. It, it looks like so far this virus is relatively stable, which is good news, and that that would mean that uh, the vaccine that hopefully will be available next year uh, will provide uh, sufficient protection for for everyone, and uh, will give us a period of uh, honeymoon at least for a few years, and who knows what's going to happen in the future when this virus will you know, continue evolving in the longer term. And perhaps we have new SARS-CoV-3, SARS-CoV-4 coming up. Right. And so, yeah, indeed. This is, not, this is not the last coronavirus we're going to see in our lifetimes. Is I would hazard to guess would be your yeah, prediction. Right. And we're still expecting the next flu, the, the, pan, the real pandemic influenza, it's it's overdue as well. So uh, I think we are getting trained with this uh, SARS-CoV-2 for the real pandemic, indeed. So sort of where I started is the New York Times has written this article about there being five models and you know they give different predictions. And there was an article in the Wall Street Journal last weekend about modelers are a little concerned that people may not be having confidence in their work. So. Could you just, you know, in sort of layman's term, explain why there's a variety of models and how these models get used, that they're, um, you know, it's how, how, they, how they are useful as we try to combat um, a virus as challenging and difficult as uh, the SARS-CoV-2? Right, exactly. Um, so the, the models in general uh, vary in, um, in design. You can have models that are have a high spatial resolution so where you are modeling individuals in the population that are mixing with each other uh, to models that aggregate space into counties uh, or states so the level of aggregation is changing uh, the fact that the virus the the models are providing different uh, predictions it, it, it just uh, there are a number of factors and I think the main factor is how the the modeler incorporates the impact of the interventions and how they see the, the future in, uh, interventions will impact the, the mixing of the individuals in the population, right? Mm-hmm. And so all of these parameters and all of these assumptions are very, uh, is, or the outcomes are very sensitive to these assumptions, right? So it is not surprising to see that some models are predicting a longer wave, a later peak in incidents. Ultimately, the models are useful to generate some scenarios of what we could expect to, to see in the future. But we, we shouldn't be thinking that the models are really predicting like the weather forecast uh, models. Um, I think we can predict, we can predict in the short term, probably in the next couple of weeks, but beyond that, we are not yet there. And I think uh, it is important to communicate this to the public. Uh, otherwise, the public is thinking that, you know, these epidemiologists don't, don't know what they are doing. I think they should understand that we're generating scenario analysis that may be helpful to think about the future, that may be helpful to think about the different type of interventions that could be in place. But um, we shouldn't be thinking that uh, we are actually predicting that there will be 200,000 deaths or 300,000 deaths. We are not there yet. That's true. <laughs> yeah, and so, and, and the New York Times article makes that point that none of the models are going out more than four weeks, that they ask 
more than a few weeks of the models is not realistic given what we know at this point and the level of surveillance we have. For example, you mentioned the weather. Well, for weather, we have, we have very elaborate methods of surveillance. And at this point, we don't have the same sources of data in terms of their integrity or their completeness as compared to, say, what we use for forecasting weather. Exactly. The data is quite limited and it has been slowly you know, improving as testing rates have been increasing. Um, I, right now, I, you know, there are, there are things, basic things such as information about the delays from a case being detected to being reported in the database. Uh, that information can, those delays, as you know, can distort the signal, right? Because some individuals may wait one day or two days or three days to seek care, to be tested, and then the test result may arrive one day or two or three days later. So all those delays, right, are not constant and are also affecting the, the, the shape of the epidemic curve. It's adding additional noise. So when we look at the curve of new cases on the US or the state level, we see so much noise. And so yeah. I think the one, one, one key issue here for the statisticians, for modelers is, how do I tease out the actual signal out of all of this noise? Um, so that's another challenge indeed that we are facing. So to bring us to just sort of wrap up here, we could go on for hours and you and I could geek out on the technical details of the models. Uh, but I heard one forecast this morning that wasn't based on a model, uh, but is a forecast, I think this is of great interest to people, and that is, it came from a medical director for infectious diseases in a health system. And it, his, his forecast was basically that every pandemic has a second wave and that there's going to be a second wave. That's um, is, is there any reason, given what you've seen with the SARS-CoV-2 virus or the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, that we should not expect a second wave, or do you anticipate one? And then what people are going to want to know is over what time frame? Indeed, I indeed I have studied past pandemics. I have studied the 2009 pandemic, the Spanish flu, in many settings. Uh, the fall winter wave has been the most devastating one, and I think uh, there is potential for a second devastating wave for this for this coronavirus, unless. Uh, we really work very, very hard. It's going to be very, very hard. But many countries will see uh, devastating waves in the fall and winter. Um, and it would be a function of how well we are able to, to control the virus and mitigate. It's going to be very challenging. Um, I, I expect that during the summer, probably incidents will not be that high because our contact rates will continue to be low, I don't think we will be interested in mixing too much. Um, this morning I was just talking to a computational social scientist about this, the fact that the fear stays in the population for some time and, and we will limit our contact rates. But that fear starts to wear, wear off, will start to wear off and gradually we will go back to, to our regular lives and if we are not ready, there will be there will be a resurgence of the disease, definitely. And, and I'm guessing it's totally to know if we're wearing masks with the which effect that would have on Indeed. spread. I think that that would be very, very helpful. Uh, even if um, you know the masks are not perfect, even in the masks 
reduces um, the probability of transmission by 50%. And even if you know not every single individual uses the mask, the collective effect can be quite profound. And I think this could be the very first pandemic where we see the impact of face mask, universal face mask wearing in a, in a pandemic. And uh, I'm very hopeful that uh, public health authorities, our leaders will guide the population and educate the population uh, through all these, you know, social media, the TV, about the things that we should be doing to be able to collectively protect ourselves from this virus. Well, Gerardo, we, we certainly appreciate all you're doing to help us better understand the, the challenges of this virus, uh, the issues and the questions that we need answered to understand the dynamics and the preventive measures we can take. So it's been a real delight and pleasure to have you on. And, and so, so proud and delighted that you're part of Georgia State. Thank you. It's my honor. Thank you very much, Mark. Well, this has been Conversations with Mark Becker, a podcast produced by Georgia State University. And you've been listening to a conversation with Professor Gerardo Chow, mathematical epidemiologist and internationally recognized infectious disease expert in Georgia State's School of Public Health. To hear future conversations with experts on the front lines addressing the coronavirus, you'll find conversations with Mark Becker wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe so that you will not miss future episodes. Goodbye for now.